Well, good morning. You may not believe this looking at me, but I do exercise a little bit. Um, try to walk a couple times during the week with my wife when our schedule permits, and then I swim twice a week. And sometimes swimming can be such a pain. I, I, I'm not a great swimmer. I swim about 25 laps, which takes me about 35 minutes. But you know, when I get about 10 laps into that swim, you know, as I'm turning the corner at the wall, I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing? Lord, I don't want to do this right now. I have to go 15 more laps. What's that all about? You feel like that sometimes when you exercise, don't you? Do you ever feel like that in relationship to your spiritual life? It has been 10 difficult laps. And I think I got about 15 more to go, Lord, or more. Who knows? And sometimes the wind kind of gets taken out of our sail. And, and, and perhaps it's because of opposition from people around us directly or just from a, indirectly from the world, which is always saying, stop following Jesus and come here. Right? It's a whole host of reasons. And I don't care if you're 14 or 85. The allurements, the pressures are all around us. The uh, Christian life was never meant to be a 100-yard dash, was it? It's a marathon. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to a familiar text, Hebrews chapter 12. I want to look at verses 1 to 13 in our time together. And, and I guess this is what I would say at the end of the day. Eugene Peterson, this is his term, not mine, but I really like it. Peterson said, when you think about the Christian life, discipleship, it is a long obedience in the same direction. That's good, isn't it? But doesn't it get hard sometimes? Don't you get times when you're saying, man, I don't know if I can stay the course. Years ago, man, I bet almost 20 years ago now, we were down in Philadelphia. There was going to be a big run. And the day before the run, they had a little kids run. So I took my older kids down for it. And one of my boys, man, he was ready for this run, man. He was just ready to go. And I told him, I said, you've got to pace yourself. And this is a little bit long. Ah, Dad, I'll be fine. Said, fine, go ahead. One lap into it, man, he was done. <laughs> I mean, he, he just he had, had it. He just came over. The same was only five or six years. Came over. I just can't do it anymore, Dad, you know. We're like that sometimes, aren't we? Sometimes you think, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I mean, there's nowhere else to go because who else is there but Jesus? But sometimes you feel that way, don't you? Just from the pressures of life around us. Their pressure was a little bit different than ours. As the writer of Hebrews, and if I say Paul when I'm talking about the author, I don't think it was Paul, but sometimes I might say that on accident. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. What we do know is there's a group of people who are so pressured. Theirs is opposition. That they're wondering, maybe they should just kind of walk away and go back to Judaism. I mean, maybe Jesus, uh, he's important, but maybe not that important. And the writer makes a plea all the way through the book saying, no, 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 no. 
The Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. And don't give up. Because there's nothing better than Jesus. Weren't you reminded of that today when, when we were singing? Don't you wish you could carry that into all of your life? We should, right? But it, frankly, it's, it's hard sometimes. And so in this text, he talks about the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction, a marathon. And where I want to really focus on, on this passage is what should our perspective be? Where should we focus? But, but prior to that, because the text says something else also, there's a little bit of preparation for running. Now, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a runner. I, I, when I would run in high school for sports, it was because I had to. And if you're a runner, God bless you. I mean, see Erica back there. I know she loves to run. And the whole Huff family loves to run. I don't think any of the Finkbeiner family likes to run. I, none, none, none of my, I mean, we run, just play a sport. We just, we just, we don't, we don't like to run. But, but that's the image that's picked up here. And I know a couple things about running. I know one thing is when you run, it's really important to have, carry no weights with you, Right? I mean, I used to wear sometimes wear vest weights and things like that when I was exercising. But when I had a game, I took those things off. And it's interesting. Look at what the writer says as, as he talks. Before he talks about our focus, our perspective, he talks about some preparation. He says this in Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, we'll come back to that one. But th- look at what he says. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us And let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us. If I told you I'm going to run a 10K. And you said, okay, Finkbeiner. And I came in and I had shackles around my ankles. And I had heavy vest weights on. What would you think? You're right, right, right. Now, you may think that anyway. But you would really think it in that moment. And you know what he says is, look, you know, we we know it's all about Jesus, a long obedience in the same direction. And some people kind of, sorry about that. Some people kind of come up and they, they, um, they just, they figure they can kind of run the race. And at the same time, they can hold on to all kinds of distractions in their life, which, which keep them out of focus or, or, or pet sins. Now we, we sin every day. That's not the issue. But, but there's times when we're not repenting. Instead, we take something, we hold it dear to ourselves, and we just don't let it go. And he says, look, that's like being shackled. You know? And, and, and look, we do all kinds of things in life, but you know we can take very, very good things, fine in themselves. I shouldn't say very good things. We can talk about things that are okay in themselves. Nothing wrong with watching sports and events and using computer stuff. Everybody knows all that. But isn't it possible for us to so focus on some of those things that we lose our perspective on what's most important? I mean, it's easy to do, isn't it? And so the writer is just saying, look, evaluate. Those distractions that just kind of keep you out of focus, those shackles of sin, that those pet sins that you hold on to. Now, look, look, look. If there's going to be a long obedience in the same direction, you got to put it off. You just, no runner would do that. So don't you do it either. Okay? Okay? By God's grace, I will seek to live this life of repentance. Okay, Doug, fair enough. But then where do I look? Because even with that, it's hard sometimes. 
And the writer of Hebrews says, I know. So I want to tell you where to look. I, I want to talk to you about what your perspective needs to be. And I want you to look three places. First thing I want you to do, the writer would say, is I want you to look around. The text says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And I don't know where I picked this up, but when I was a little kid. And somebody must have preached this passage. I kind of always assumed that what this meant was, you know, like, Doug, you better watch how you live your life because Uncle Charlie up in heaven is watching you. And when you get there, you're in big trouble. You know, so it's not just Santa Claus. You bring Uncle Charlie into this thing now, too. Right. (laughs) The point of, Hebrew, uh, of Hebrews 12.1 is not that they see us, folks. That's not the point. You know what the point is? That we need to see all the saints of God that have gone before us. It's Hebrews chapter 11. And, 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 and really what happens in Hebrews chapter 12, you come out of Hebrews 11 with all of the momentum of the text. I mean, he starts with Abel and just... Bang, 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 bang. Works all the way through that chapter. So you get to the end, you go like, holy mackerel. They're everywhere. So I'm trying to run this race. I'm in this stadium, if you will. And I'm looking around and I see all of these Old Testament saints. I say, wow, thank you, God. Let me have you for just a second. Come back to Hebrews chapter 11. Come back with me, if you would, to verse uh, 32. Verse 32. We're not going to read the whole chapter. It's an incredible chapter. The writer says this. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. And that listen to the kind of thing that God did. This is interesting. Who by faith in the lives of people their lives were about a long obedience in the same direction. That's the way it's supposed to be. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, and shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong. Look at Gideon, for heaven's sakes, right? Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women receive back their dead by the resurrection. So the writer is saying this. You're trying to live the Christian life, this long obedience in the same direction. He says, as you look around, what you will see is an incredibly powerful God working through the saints of God in the Old Testament era. And showing them from time to time, just kind of stepping into their experience and saying, I am God, see what I can do, right? And so as they were people of faith, you would take a guy like Gideon, who was scared of his own shadow, and through him, bring a great victory. You would take a man in Daniel 6 and stick him in a lion's den, And hungry, ferocious lions weren't hungry a bit. God just shut their mouths. You will find widows several times, two times in the Old Testament, whose children have died 
One widow and the other one wasn't. One was a widow and the other wasn't. And, and what happens is God breathes back into their life. Into their body's life. And, and so you see all these miracles. And the point is this. As you're running the race, sometimes you wonder, is God God? Yeah. And the Old Testament saints walked with him and he would step into history to remind them through his great exploits, I'm God, keep living by faith. Now here's the problem. Does he always do it that way? Don't you sometimes feel like, I'm trying to live by faith? I haven't seen any miracles like that. I mean, I've heard about them, but, but I haven't seen them. Maybe, maybe God doesn't care about me as much. Look what the writer goes on to say in Hebrews 11. So yes, sometimes this incredible God brings great exploits through people. That's true. And other times he chooses just to give us the strength to endure without changing our circumstances. Look at what verse 35b says. And others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. History, some of the later writers tell us, Christian writers tell us that uh, Isaiah was sawn in two. He's hiding in a tree and they just come and chop the whole thing. I, I don't know if that happened, but that's, that's what they were told. They were stoned. They, they were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. In other words, they, did, they, were, they were so destitute, they didn't even have clothes. They, they didn't use animals. To, to, to clothe themselves. And they didn't have enough food. And they wandered from one cave. To another cave. To another cave. And that's how they lived their life. And the writer says this. I love this in verse 38. People of whom the world was not worthy. He can't, he can't contain himself. He's saying this incredible God. Sometimes does exploits. Through his people as they walk by faith. And other times he doesn't do exploits. But he gives them endurance. So as they face all kinds of difficulty. They just keep going and going and going. And you know what? God doesn't say they're my. I like those people and not these people does he? No. He looks at this group and says. The world is not worthy of people like this. That is God's thumbs up to his people, folks. So you, as you and I are running the race of life, and it gets hard. It gets hard for a whole bunch of reasons. He says, I want you to look around. And when you look around, you will see an unchanging God who has worked from eternity past for his people. And that means sometimes he steps into life and we are like them and he does, he does wonderful, incredible things. And if we went around here, we would find, we would, you could give all testimony of times when God has done something that only God can do. True. But there's other times when it seems like life is dry. And this unchanging God chooses to minister in our lives at that point by just giving us strength to endure and, and so the writer is saying, wherever you find yourself, I am God. I find something else in this text. Did you ever, um, did you ever read some of these stories from the past? Say, man, would I love to be there at the time of David. 
Man, I could get into that Gideon event. I'd love to be with Daniel for just a couple days. Not not Jeremiah, but but Daniel. (laughs) Jeremiah, not so much, you know. Ezekiel, yeah, when he had his vision, be a pretty good one too. I would want to argue something to you. As I read through the book of Hebrews, I would have no interest in going back to the Old Testament era. Not because God did not work powerfully and love people and work through his people. It's all true. It's all true. But notice how the text ends in verse 39 and 40 of chapter 11. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God has, had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I mean, God is the unchanging God, but his son has not yet come. Folks, perfection, people getting ultimately everything that God has for them, it is all bound up in Jesus Christ. So historically, as wonderful as that time period was, it was before Jesus. And what he says is, you... As you're running the race, be encouraged by them, but realize something. You are privileged above them. Because you know Jesus in a way that they never did. Oh, they knew Messiah was coming. They didn't know what that whole meant. That was fuzzy and all that. But you're you're there. You're post the first coming of Jesus Christ. And that changes everything in our lives. There's this really interesting passage in Matthew chapter 11. And, And do you remember... When John the Baptist is sitting in prison and he's having his doubts and he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, are you the, are you the Messiah? Are we waiting for someone else? Because I felt like the Messiah was going to like change everything like right now. And Jesus was, no, I am Messiah, but I will change everything ultimately, but it's not exactly the way you think it is, John, right? And then they leave. Jesus looks at the crowd and says, you see, John, of all those born of women, there has not appeared anybody greater than John. Oh, really? John's greater than Daniel? And Joseph? And Abraham? And Moses? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Every one of them. Why? Because he can point to Jesus Christ more clearly than anybody that came before him. He introduced Jesus, didn't he? Do you know what the text goes on to say? But he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Do you know that Doug Finkbeiner is greater than John the Baptist? Did you know that? Because my character is so deep and all. No. You know why, folks? Because of my proximity to Jesus. I understand more about Jesus than John the Baptist did, who understands more than they did before him. And I stand in a place of history where I can tell people, know exactly why Jesus came. I know he's resurrected. I know he now is at the right hand of God, interceding for me. And I know he's coming back. John was fuzzy on how all that stuff was going to work out. Our greatness is bound up in our proximity to Jesus. Do you see that? And so this text 
You're trying to run the light rate. You say, okay, I'm trying to deal with the shackles, trying to go. He says, look around, look around. You see all these Old Testament saints, wonderful, wonderful. And yet you're like them, but you're privileged above them. If they endured, how much more are you? Because you know Jesus. And that changes everything. So, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Where else should we look? Not just look around, but look ahead. Verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood in your striving against sin. You know what he says? You're trying to walk with Jesus, long obedience in the same direction. You're trying to do it. You're trying to do it. You're looking around. You're saying, man, Abel, thank you. Noah, thank you. Moses, Abraham, thank you. Moses, thank you. Yeah, right on down the line. And, and that's all really good. Look around. But even more so, look ahead. And when you look ahead, you see Jesus. And he is the author and finisher of our faith, folks. That means he has already cut the path for us. Do you see? And he will take us the distance. I like to think of it sometimes when I read this passage. He's like the ultimate player coach. Do you ever have a coach train you in high school who never played the game? Now, I'm not saying there's not some good coaches out there like that. But I always favored the coaches who had played the game and now they're coaching the game. That, 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 that always, for me, made a, made a whole lot more sense because I'm saying, they know what I'm going through. And it's even better if you get a coach that was like an Olympic star, you know, and now he's just dealing with this little high school podunk team. And you think like, wow, great guy like that working. And he's real compassionate and sensitive. Yeah, man, that's like a win-win. Well, Jesus is the ultimate in that, folks. The ultimate. The author and finisher of our faith. And as the text is unpacked for us, we find three things. And there's a, I don't want to get Greeky on you, but there's one little Greeky thing that I actually disagree with here in the translation. And, he, and I don't want to get technical. But so, so, uh, what we find is he talks about the joy that is set before him, right? He talks about enduring the cross. And he talks about sitting at the right hand of God. Now, it, the joy thing is the problem. Uh, it's not a problem. It's just trying to understand what it means. It means one or two things. It either means Jesus who endured the cross and would sit down at the right hand of God. It either means that he did this because he saw this as the joy. Does that make sense? That's one option. But I think there's a better option. I think this is identical to Philippians 2. And I think what he's saying here is instead of the joy that was set before him. That was the glories of heaven. You know what he did? He said. In obedience to the father. And my love for humanity. I'm going to. Put all that praise and glory aside. And I'm going to come down. 
And I'm going to endure the cross. And shame from people who in a second I could kill, but I won't. And I'm going to do all that and face all of that because I do know at the end of the day, I will be the right hand of the Father. And so what he says is this, and I've used it here before, but I, I I say this. The reason this text gives us so much encouragement is this. None of us start where Jesus started. None of us go where Jesus went or ultimately where he returned. None of us. Do we? Anybody in here God? I don't think so. He is God. And he always remained God when he came. But he, he, he gave up the independent exercise of some of his attributes, didn't he? I mean, he was always love. He was always holy. But he submitted to the Father, his power, and all those things, didn't he? So here he is, God of very God. He starts way up here, and he comes down, and he dies. And he doesn't just die. He dies for the sins of the world. Impossible for anybody but God in human flesh. That's it. So he starts here, he goes all the way down here, and now he is exalted to this place in glory. Now, where would you put Doug Finkbeiner on that scale? Do I start here? No way! I mean, where am I? Like, I'm way down here. I don't even know where I am. I'm here. And I never sacrificed so much that the Father abandoned me as I was paying for the sins of the world, right? That never happened. Like, so, like, I just kind of went, like, boop. That far, maybe. In the difficulties of life, I'd start about here and I oh, that's it. Oh, oh, oh. And God in his good grace one day in glory gives me a foretaste sometimes now, but not always. I go to heaven and I enjoy his glories forever. So I go, yeah, that's it. That's me. That's my life. Boop, boop, right there. He's the ultimate V. I'm a beep, glitch at best. But you know what he says? Doug. As you run this race, look at Jesus. He gave up more than you will ever give up. He faced more than you will ever face. And he is now exalted above everybody. Run. Looking at a player coach who stands before the Father saying, I've forgiven you. Come, come, come. Doesn't he? I mean, that's the ultimate player coach, folks. So you're trying to gut out this Christian life. He says, man, look around and you look around, you will find all kinds of encouragement. Look ahead and when you look ahead, you will see Jesus Christ. And our little V's are very, very significant to us, and I'm not trying to minimize them, but they have no comparison to his. None. Look around. Look ahead. And look up. Because when you look up, you will find a heavenly father who is for you in the person of his son. Verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? And he quotes here then from Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 12. My son, and then he's going to apply it. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Um, you know what's interesting in this passage in Proverbs? It can have the idea of when a parent is disciplining a child, they can either just kind of go and give up. You ever kids that do that? Like, 
or they can go, I'm mad at you, Dad. Right? This text is saying, look, in the Christian life sometimes, when God allows those things in your life, some people kind of go like, oh, oh. And other people go, God, I am mad at you. You're supposed to like be working my side of the street. They don't say it, but that's what they think. And this text says, look, my son, don't regard lightly. Don't faint. Why? For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Very, very important in this passage. Very, very important. There are two kinds of disciplines in Scripture. There's what we call corrective and formative. Corrective means... Doug is wandering away from God and God disciplines Doug to bring him back. Corrective. Formative means Doug's trying to live the Christian life. But God still allows this stuff into his life that's painful because he's trying to grow him. Do you see? Hebrews 12 is talking about that kind of discipline, folks. Right there. He says three things about it. And I'll hit this with you and I'll be done. Number one, I got bad news. The experience of discipline is inevitable. That's his first application. Look at what he says. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. When you go to the store and somebody else's kid is having a temper tantrum, what do you do? I do nothing. I may whisper to my wife, but I don't go over and say, stand up, young man. Or pinch him in the leg and say, you are really in trouble when we get home. You know, that's what you are. I mean, because you don't want to, you can't spank in public or anything. So you're going to pinch it. Boy, payday's coming, pal. You know, oh, 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 you know, yeah, right. But I don't do that. Some other kid. I just like, whatever. You know, I mean, that's somebody else's responsibility. Now, my kid has a temper tantrum and they get pinched. <laughs> You better stop right now because you're in big trouble when we get back home. Right? I mean, is that what you do? Something like that. We all have our strategies. Here's the point. God only pinches his children. Oh, he judges the lost. Fair enough. But he disciplines his own. And God says... When things are not going well in your life and, and you really are trying to walk with him as best you know how, don't think God's against you. You will feel like God's against you, won't you? It's not true. It is not true. God is for you and anything he lets into your life, it's for your good. So the, the, the experience of discipline is inevitable. The purpose of discipline in verse 9 and 10 is always beneficial. Look at what he says. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. He says, look, take the best father figure you can come up with. And, and I know when I talk to a group of people this size, there are people who would say, my father was a lousy father. I, I know that. 
He wasn't there. He neglected, I, all that stuff. I, I, and I understand that. Um, but let's, let's find the best father around. I, I had, and still do, an incredible father. You know, um, don't know how long he's, you know, I'm hoping he lives for many years, but his health is fragile, and so you just never quite know. Wonderful, wonderful model for me. He, he was a great father, but he wasn't perfect. And if you ask my girls sitting down here in front about me as a father, they would very quickly tell you the same thing. And he says, but take fathers who really try to do the right thing. They do it for the good of their children, not perfectly. I mean, we're all flawed. But use that as just kind of a minor object lesson for God who never gets it wrong. Have you ever as a parent disciplined your child and found out afterwards you didn't get the whole story? Oh, man. And then you have to go back and ask for forgiveness in the whole deal. God always gets the first full story. God always knows. God knows me better than I know myself. So because sometimes I'll tell my, my kids, now, look, you're going to have to trust me on this. This is the right thing to do. Yeah, but that, just trust me. I know you better than you think and better than you probably know yourself. And I know what's out there. You're going to have to trust me on this. God does that to us all the time. He says, you're going to have to trust me on this because I'm out for your good and my glory. So just trust me. Discipline is inevitable. But God says it's always beneficial because it comes from the hands of one who knows exactly what he's doing. I'm not a clam farmer, oyster farmer or any of those things. But I'm told about people that are in that business that they know just how much sand tiny bit of sand to put inside of that oyster or that clam so that it feels uncomfortable and starts excreting whatever that mollusk excretes so that at the end of the day you have a pearl see God is the master of putting just the right amount in so that we by his grace and for his glory produce pearls Discipline is inevitable, but it is always beneficial whether you feel like it or not. And lastly, the purpose of, uh, purpose of discipline is beneficial. The process of discipline is always painful. All discipline, verse 11, for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Maybe you've had this experience. I haven't. We have chores around the house. I want you to unload the dishwasher. I want you to vacuum the floor. I want you to clean your room. You know, all these kinds of things. And I don't put chores upon my children because, you know, they've done something wrong. Like, hey, I don't like what you did. Fine. Go clear the dishwasher. I mean, right? I mean, well, maybe you do. But we do that because... I want them to learn that they've got to become responsible in life. And one day they're going to be in their own home and they're going to have to just do chores. So I'm going to give them a foretaste of that now, right? And I'm not bringing that pressure into their life because they've done something wrong. It's merely formative to grow them. That's all. I don't think this has ever happened. I got wonderful kids. But I don't think I've ever had one of my kids come after I've said, hey, just come in from outside. I know you're having a good time, but I want you to come in. I want you to clear the dishwasher. I mean, what, 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 what do your kids normally do? I mean, what? what? 
can you give me 10 more minutes or something? You know, something like that. You know, that's what my kids do. I never had them say, oh, dad, thank you. I'll be right back. I get to go and grow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now my kids, now I'll be in soon, which is code for a half hour. You know, I mean, all kinds of stuff they're doing. And, 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 and you know, I mean, who likes that stuff? But that's me. God says, Doug, I want you to go clean the, do the dishwasher. I'm bringing something in your life that's going to be hard. But it's going to be good for you. Could you give me 30 minutes? <laughs> or more? <laughs> right? I mean, I want to push that baby far back as I can. Yeah, 30 years would be even better. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I'd be gone by then. No, no issue, right? And God says, no. I know it's going to hurt. I know it's going to be painful. But I know where it's going. And you have to trust me. As your loving father. To do the right thing. So brothers and sisters. I don't know where you are in your Christian life right now. You know maybe. Maybe by his grace you're just trying to gut it out. Maybe you're slowing down. Maybe you stepped out and you're on the sideline. I don't know where you are. But this text calls us back to say, look, you run the race. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And you can do it by his grace. Look around. Look ahead. And look up. And then in those immortal words of Winston Churchill, as he stood before the Harrow School and said, never, never, never give up. You can because of you no. because of him who is at work in your life as you look and keep that God perspective father thank you so much for your word